Hello, Athletic Football Podcast people. We've got another bonus episode for you today. What you're about to hear is a recent edition of the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, where the panel, consisting of our top tactics team, Michael Cox, Mark Carey, Liam Tharm and Ali Maxwell, discuss whether we can truly measure the importance of a manager to a club's fortunes. They explore the evolution of a manager's role, from basic admin tasks to becoming the central figurehead of a club. They ask questions like, will there ever be a time when a manager's influence is overtaken by the views and opinions of a club's data department? And is the new manager bounce actually a myth? If you enjoy the show, make sure to visit their extensive back catalogue. They've done almost 200 episodes on individual players, tactical trends, data and lots, lots more. Just search for the Athletic Football Tactics podcast everywhere you get your pods. The Athletic. High press. Oh, no, I know. That used to be closing down. Low block. That used to be set deep. Transition. Just trying to baffle the public to sound intelligent. Swallowed a laptop. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. Today I'm with Michael Cox, Liam Tharm, and Mark Carey from The Athletic. And we are being produced by an SJA award-winning producer, Adonis Pratsidis. Winner of Best Audio Doc for a piece of work that Adonis did a couple of months ago with Mark Chapman, with Adam Leventhal as well. Fantastic uh, recognition for a magnificent man and a great producer as well, making us sound better than we actually do every single week. Uh, This episode is part two of a two-part series about the state of football management in the Premier League and beyond. Uh, Last week, we discussed the way that the role has changed over time and increased demands on a manager or a head coach and that impact on the rate of managerial sackings, which has been trending pretty consistently upwards. Hello, everyone. Hello, Ali. Hi. It strikes me that the four of us today, bear with me for a second, if you pulled our skill set, on paper could do a decent job as a co-management team. Right, a sort of Roy Evans plus Gerard Houllier at Liverpool plus Roy McFarland and Colin Todd at Bolton kind of vibe. So Michael would be the face of it, I guess, as the, the senior member with the most experience and, and let's be honest, the strongest conviction and self-belief of the four. <laughs> uh, he'd probably oversee overarching tactical strategy, handling the media, uh, sending barbs towards the Sky Sports pundits in post-match interviews, all of that good stuff. Um, Liam, your LinkedIn bio says, oh, and Jesus. I quote... Aspiring football coach with a passion for performance analysis with an exclamation mark. What does yours say, Ali? <laughs> not, not telling. <laughs> uh, so you're going to be on the grass putting the X's and O's into being. Um, it's not an aspiration anymore, son. The win bonuses pays the mortgage. Uh, and Mark, big job for you. Um, you and Liam can share performance analysis, but you're doing all the other data-related responsibilities. Uh, and as for me, shall I arrange the Christmas party? Yeah, I think oh, you're underselling yourself so much there, Ali. I think team bonding's the the thing that I could contribute here. Chief of vibes. Um, let's get the ball rolling. No real warm up here. We're picking straight up off last week's discussion. So anyone listening, it could be worth going back to listen to last week's episode before continuing with this one. Um, how important is a football manager? How much impact do they have on the performance of a team, and why? Michael Cox. Well, I think it's been an interesting journey, the kind of experience of a football manager. I mean, when football was originally devised, there was no real football manager. There was someone who organised the players on a very logistical basis. And gradually they became what we know they are today. But it went through quite a, a gradual evolution. And I always think it's quite funny when you look at the uh, 
the the records and the win percentages of the England managers over time. At one point, it's just a committee. There's mm. no actual manager. I think maybe the best account of this is uh, a very good book by Barney Rone, who writes for The Guardian, I'm sure some people will be aware of. He wrote a book called The Manager, The Absurd Ascent of the Most Important Man in Football. And it is really quite funny because you, you are just taken through the history and you realise that, you know, this is a person who at one point it's just like sorting out the kit and the transport and stuff and then gradually has come up with like you know pressing traps and <laughs> you know that kind of stuff so um yeah it's probably been a kind of a gradual curve and maybe we're getting towards the point where the importance of the manager is going down because there are so many other roles in football whether it's a sporting director whether it's 10 assistants on the bench with him um so yeah i'd say the importance of the manager has varied over time and yet what is sometimes called the cult of the manager and which I would describe in, I suppose, in, in the terms that we're talking about as the level of focus on that position at a football club from fans, media, those within the game is still absolutely huge. And to my eyes, quite disproportionate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's probably true. And again, I think some managers who've been around for a while tend to be quite surprised at the emphasis on managers in the modern day period. I mean, I remember Roy Hodgson, I think it was when he was in that brief period at Liverpool, was just surprised how often the cameras cut to him. And he said something like, in the 1980s, you never used to have any attention on the manager. The, the, the TV cameras would never pick up the manager, which actually I'd never thought about, but it's actually true. If you watch games from that period, I'm not sure that many people would know what Alf Ramsey looked like in the 1960s. Everyone would know what the players looked like, but you never really saw Alf Ramsey. So yeah, there, there probably is too much focus on the manager these days. But I think it's linked to just a wider focus on individuals. I mean, whether it's a player or the manager, everything now seems to come back to one individual. We saw that the weekend with Manchester United's loss, which was clearly a collective failing. And it all gets put on uh, Bruno Fernandes, which was quite weird. The same way in previous years it would have been put all on Solskjaer. Or it's always just one individual. I think not just within football, but I think society in general, last 10, 15 years, there's been an increased shift towards a real obsession with people. I think we're all desperate for causality in a football sense. Um, and I'm sure we're, we're guilty of at times in the pieces that we write and how we look at things where you're trying to find an explanation for something and there's too many confounding things put together that all on their own maybe aren't significant, but you, you stitch them all together and suddenly that's the big reason for something going right or going wrong. Um, and it can be easy. I think people uh, are very guilty of probably, you know, stereotyping um, or sorry, scapegoating rather uh, in sort of picking out a playing, oh, you've done that one thing wrong or like we saw with Bruno Fernandes. Um, and I think that just comes from really all the emotion that's attached to it where people are angry or people are really happy. Um, and often there's managers now that the ones that seem to get criticised the most are the ones that are sort of quite balanced and quite reserved and try to avoid being at either end of the emotional spectrum mm. um, and looking at things sort of more holistically. So yeah, I, I agree with Coxie. I think things have got more individual focus, which is maybe now down to how people around the world consume football, that people aren't necessarily all tied to local places. There's not an inherent attachment to somewhere geographically. They do care more about the actual person putting on the shirt rather than the shirt itself. Um, and that's, that's fine. So be it, I guess just, yeah, times change and, and things evolve. I think from a statistical perspective, um, maybe skipping ahead here in terms of the importance of the, the manager, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but like you say, in football, there's so much variance. There's so many things at play. There's so much, there's so many random factors. And I think the, the role of the manager over and above all of those other things um, is the thing that I think we do maybe inflate the importance of. Um, as I say, we'll come on to it in, in greater depth, but 
we do have a tendency to, as you say, Liam, reverse the narrative and try and think of things in a reductionist way, in a simplistic way, but variants being a whole host of different things that are kind of all combining together is actually kind of what's going on. Um, but we try and tease out all of the specific things. But the, the simple answer, I think, is that it's very complex. And we also see such a very specific part of the interactions that we get with with media as media people or, or as football fans with coaches and with managers, which is either in a press conference where I imagine a lot of coaches and managers don't enjoy them. There's been some great clips recently, I think, of, of Michael Elise sort of post-match just being really sort of unbothered and giving very sort of short and, and direct answers. And I'm sure there's sort of some coaches that um, are the same. And what they do in training and how they act on sort of a day-to-day -day basis, I know sort of from experience in, in doing coaching, can look very different to what you actually do out on a touchline where you're, you're effectively trying to win a game over 90 minutes. And it's a really inconvenience, I imagine, where players feel they have to cover their mouths or, you know, coaches are trying to show a player a, a laminated sheet for the set pieces without that getting sort of exposed and seen. So it, it really is a form of performance. They're doing the same thing as players where this isn't generally how they are as a person. And I think I remember a lot of people being quite surprised by how um, Mourinho came across on the Spurs All or Nothing documentary where they were like, oh, I imagine him in the training ground as this person that's, you know, everything's back to the wall, this big siege mentality, the whole world hates us. But actually he turns out to be a really nice, decent bloke. And that clip where he, he sits down with Deli Ali and really openly says, I think you'll regret stuff if you don't, you know, um, explode and, and become amazing. Um, a lot of people seem to keep resurfacing now being like, wow, this guy's actually a great thinker as if like, yeah, we just see a really weird <laughs> specific part of them and then act as if that's their entire personality. And it's, it's not. Yeah, I mean, in my other work in the last five, six, seven years, I've spent a lot of time working uh, in a media setting with either current or often out of work managers. And I would say almost to a person, they are different or your perception your response to them is different when you spend five, six, seven hours with them in a what you might call just a normal setting than what you had this image that you had built in your mind based on what we are able to see as fans and observers via the media and, and, and that sort of thing. So, I, I mean, essentially, I think to start with, we're, we're talking about things like human nature and Michael, you've touched on sort of societal aspects as well here. Um, but I'm interested to, to talk and try and, and drill down on the footballing side in terms of performance, team performance. How important is a manager, Mark? I think that there is a huge part of this where I'd love to hear about the data. I'd love to hear about the statistics. I know that there's been tons of work done on this, tons of studies trying to work this question out. How much impact does a good manager have on a team versus an average manager versus a bad manager? What is the reality? It's a very, very good question, um, <laughs> one that I will try my best to answer. But I, I think it's, it's asking that question and saying, like, how much does the manager make an impact over and above what the team performance is in itself? And I've done things in pieces where it's looked at maybe a short list of managers and looked to see who would be the most suitable fit. And the main thing that we have to go off is what the team performance has been, mm. but it's disentangling, kind of like the variance thing I said before, disentangling what is simply having the good players to at your disposal to be able to actually implement a certain style or a certain success and how much is the manager. And that bef that's before we even come onto the things like, you know, wh what they're like in the training ground, like Liam mentioned before. Um, so it's very, very difficult to, to work out the impact of a manager, as I say, over and above what is just having a good set of players. And you can think about things like formations, obviously, and, and team style. But um, if we were to use it from a data perspective, and I can come on to a couple of research studies in a bit, um, it's, it's very difficult to 
um, to really look at the intangibles of, that a manager has in terms of that impact and try and really quantify that. So it's certainly something I've struggled with when I've been writing pieces to, look, to profile managers you know, against each other. One of the things when thinking about this, Michael, that kept popping up in my mind was over the last 10 years or so, the, the amount of times that we will have all read that uh, a team's wage bill is, in many people's eyes, the strongest indicator or predictor of that team's success. Just if you take every single league, that will broadly be the best predictor of team success. So that's quite important to bring up as part of this discussion. There's an aspect to which the strongest indicator is maybe nothing to do with the manager. So are we just talking about the, the 10, 20% on top of that that they can impact? Yeah, to a certain extent. But I think this is the case in, in many team sports. I mean, I think you can say the equivalent of, you know, you can look at Formula One and you can say if you got the average driver and you got them to drive every car, you know, the Red Bull car would be faster than whatever's at the back of the grid. But the bigger teams attract the best drivers. So it's the same thing that happens here. I mean, Guardiola, in my opinion, is a, a better manager than Ruben Sellers at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were to put the average manager in charge of all the clubs, Man City would still finish top. So I don't think it, it negates the point that managers make a, a big difference. And that 10, 20% now is a major difference. I think it's not to be the clear, majority. I've come yeah. up with the 10, 20% there. Well, <laughs> there are a lot of people listening who, who like the numbers to be pretty precise. That is not a precise number, let's be clear. But I think even in principle about, you know, whether a coach can get that extra bit out of a team or not, or after certain players, whether you can sort of maximise, there's, there's some coaches that we look at now of sort of saying they make their team sort of great in some of its parts. Um, that is important and that is the difference when we're talking, you know, 1.2 points to win a title or to sort of avoid relegation. Um, it then becomes, again, a very sort of outcome um, based and, and driven in that regard. But, um, you know, th those are big differences and most teams can probably do at some point in time, 60, 70, 80% of it right, they, they can. But if you don't do that last 20%, you're going to come way under your expectations um, or your hopes. And then that will lead to, yeah, if they choose to sack managers or, or get rid of players, etc., that's going to, going to happen. I was looking at something from uh, Soconomics, which is a, a book that all people should read. Um, and they said that there's a 90% correlation between teams' wages and their results. Um, which does kind of feed into 10%, your, to your 10 point. 10% on top. So there's a very strong relationship between yeah, those who have more money and obviously those who, who win games. And that's obviously over a, a long period. Um, and it makes the sort of the Leicester City winning the title um, story so so random and so thrilling for that reason. Um, and one of the, the co-authors of this book looked at English football from 1973 to 2010 and found that only 10%, so when you said about 10%, I was waiting to say this, only 10% of top flight managers consistently overachieved when wages were taken into account. So among that variance, that sort of was the, the signal that came out, only 10% of managers consistently overachieved. So that there are the, the main examples that I'm sure we'll think of, like a Sir Alex Ferguson, like a Arsene Wenger and you know, others over a longer period. But I thought that was, that was really yeah. interesting. And also, it's a little bit chicken and egg. I mean, I understand this doesn't necessarily apply if, you know, every manager is in place short term. But if you look at Liverpool, for example, you know, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold have been tremendous fullbacks for five years or so now. And one was kind of a midfielder from the academy. One was a guy who'd just gone down with whole city. Now, OK, you can argue they were just great players always waiting to kind of explode into top level players. I'd argue that Jurgen Klopp's had a really big impact on their development individually and has found a system that they shine in. And I don't know what their wages are, but I bet they're on pretty good wages now. And that's that's not, 
you know, it's because of the success. It's because they've been turned into great players by a really good manager, in my opinion. But yeah, I'm glad you've brought up players here because bringing up the wage bill as a, a correlator for league position or, or success, what we're talking about when we say wage bill are basically the players that you have at your disposal. Again, doesn't always fit this, but in general, the more you spend on player wages, uh, the, the higher quality the player that you have, um, Michael. So another phrase springs to mind that some managers do like to use, which is you're only as good as the players at your disposal. Now, it suits managers to say that because it's almost removing a layer of responsibility, right? Well, was, I didn't have the players at my disposal. But it also kind of reminds me of something you said last week, that managers in the old days were judged on the players that they signed, essentially being scouts and recruiters. Uh, whereas now, clearly that's not the case. And yet, player quality equals wage bill broadly is still the probably the strongest factor of a team's success. Yeah, it's true. It's funny. I mean, that that kind of emphasis has slightly gone out the window. And when you do get a player who's really linked to a manager, it feels quite weird now. I mean, I remember when Moyes went to Manchester United and his only signing the first summer was Fellaini. And that, he just felt almost too pegged to the success of Moyes and vice versa. But yeah, in general, they're, they're, they're not signing the players. They've got to do a job with the players. And I think some of the models we're seeing now of teams, um, I think Brentford are a great example, are of clubs that are trying to do things and put money maybe disproportionately elsewhere to what other clubs are doing. So not just going out and spending huge wages and sums um, on players, uh, or at least not all that frequently and not, you know, giving massively high contracts, but actually investing more in sort of other areas. So I wonder sort of looking at the, the data that Mark's got, um, if that was to sort of be, you know, the same metrics we looked at over more recent times, um, whether that, you know, it still is a trend that keeps correlating, um, how things change. And it's, it's a principle that I guess in the same way that things like goal difference tend to sort of also follow the table by by the end of it, that these are, again, it's that correlation thing of you looking at these things that are largely should determine performance, um, are going to determine, determine performance. To me, it's not like a, a huge shock and saying, well, it doesn't then mean just go and spend more money on players because you also need to spend the money well, you need to use the money well, um, as, as Coach said, you need to develop players well. That doesn't mean go out and spend 40 million on a player and they're guaranteed to be good. Mm. That might be a player you don't spend any money on that has numerous contract extensions that you also keep there and you curate them over time. I want to touch on what I think is a crucial word in this discussion. Mark's already used it once, and that is the word fit. <laughs> I think there are a few categories that are generally accepted as being chunks that make up a manager's full package, right? So things like tactics and strategy, coaching and development and, and training, uh, then squad management, motivation, man management, essentially sort of soft skills. That also includes managing upwards, managing the board, and then things like media personality and, and how the way that you uh, pre represent the club uh, impacts the outside world's vision of, of both yourself and the club. Depending on the club that you're at, Michael, and depending on what the structure is around you and who else is working at that club, and depending on the circumstances that you walk into, pre-season, mid-season, relegation battle, pushing for, for the title, some of those are just more important than others. So this is where we get this idea of, of fit, right? The concept of a good fit. And I'm interested to know whether you think this is just purely something where we use instinct to decide if someone's a good fit or not, or if there's something more objective about it? It's a good question. I think a lot of it is is instinct, yeah. I mean, I think there are some examples where 
For example, Liverpool, when they were looking for a new manager in 2015, they were seemingly choosing between Ancelotti and Klopp. I would have said at that point, I mean, Ancelotti had the better track record, you know, more successes at more clubs. But I, I really th- strongly felt Klopp was a better fit because he just, he came from a club in Dortmund that I think was quite similar to Liverpool in terms of it was like a kind of, you know, slightly working men's club. It wasn't a club of superstars. It wasn't really a, a glamour club. It was a kind of club that was about the community, if that makes sense. And I just thought Klopp tapped into the quite unique feel around Liverpool better than Ancelotti would have. But but then what about, I've tried and, and failed on a personal level to remove Ferguson, Wenger, Klopp and Guardiola as much as possible from these discussions because they are such outliers. What about an unnamed mid-table Premier League club with a less obvious identity, either as a club or as a playing style, and shopping in a pool of managers who aren't obviously you know, who haven't just had success everywhere. This is where I think this is just fascinating and so difficult to work out. I think a lot of clubs recruit a coach based on what they want to be more so than what they are and see a coach go, oh, we want to play in that sort of way. Um, or we like the record that they've got. I see a coach that's got, you know, maybe European experience or, or trophies to the name and gone, you know, I want those things that are associated with that person. Um, and you buy into sort of the track record and because um, it, it is really hard to do, I guess you need to have things to sort of decide and go between and say, look, how do we, you can't necessarily guarantee that the style can be the same because the players are going to be different, the budget, all the resources, etc. cetera. So um, I guess you sort of, you, you take belief and then you naturally attribute those successes. And I guess the failures also um, inherently to that manager and saying, oh, they have this trophy. Therefore, you know, they must have done something good enough to get that. Therefore, can we take that and hopefully price it out of them? Um, it, it's a gamble I guess they think is worth taking. I mean, yeah, in terms of whether or not you can predict fit, I think if, you could do it accurately, everyone would be doing it. So I think it is very difficult to do. I'm trying to think whether or not you could do it with, with data per se. I, I don't think you can really, but... Well, it's become a big part of manager recruitment, hasn't it? Data shortlisting and filtering for play styles and things of that nature. Yeah, no, completely. I think with the sort of the intangibles and the the, the sort of the chemistry and things like that that go with it, it, it might be a little bit more difficult to predict. I think the reason I use chemistry is because I'm d- looking at something at the player level, which is looking at more kind of forward thinking analytics and artificial intelligence to try and predict the fit at the player level. Um, so it might not necessarily be answering it at the, the manager level, but I'm working um, on a project which should hopefully be coming out soon um, with a company called Sentient Sports. And they do this artificial intelligence and I'm doing it on Jude Bellingham, just kind of giving the game away, but people should look out for the article soon um, to simulate what his fit would be at the the teams that he's being tipped to to maybe play for soon. So Liverpool and Real Madrid and Manchester City, Manchester United, etc. And it does it based on tactical fit, but chemistry prediction and all the things that go with it to actually have more of a, a forward thinking prediction um, rather than necessarily what they've done in the past. And you could do the same at the manager level. This is what they've done at the past. Graham Potter's had a lot of success at Brighton. How can we then use that to predict what his fit will be at Chelsea? It's it, That leap is a bit of a leap of faith, but trying to use more statistical models to try and predict what that fit is, I think is what I guess the future will be at the manager level for using data for recruitment. 
I think because it's so hard to do objectively, as you say, with some of the data, that's where you've got to start putting more stock into what we can look at and see subjectively. So you can look at how a coach is maybe adapting their team over time or the style tweaks that they're making, um, the personnel that they've got and how they're adapting their shape either to it or they're not. So, um, you know, there, there are players that have retrained positions under Graham Potter um, as, as the bright example to continue from, from what Mark was saying. Um, and now you look at what he's sort of doing with Chelsea and trying different systems. He's gone back to a different shape now. And I know that there's even more sort of variables at Chelsea because they've brought in a lot of players and they've had turnover. Um, but sort of then I think we naturally maybe don't give enough sort of predictive value to sort of what we can see and subjectively analysing it. But anyone that's watched Chelsea, I think over the past um, few few weeks, few months, in particular the last couple of games will say, okay, maybe their last 30 minutes of games wasn't as much bossing or dominating a game where they sat back more, but you can say there were really good ways they were manipulating opposition. Um, you can see relationships starting to form now. I thought Jean Felix and Ben Jewel are starting to play together in a really complimentary way. The same with Kai Havertz, who, for instance, dropped into more of a number 10 role um, in, in the Champions League game in the week, and Sterling played as sort of a, a number nine who had played at left wing back in Potter's first game. So it's sort of those things of you've then got to look at, okay, what can we see and what can we do and what can we measure, um, even if it's not necessarily uh, specifically a number or you know quantifiable um, I think we have to sort of trust that a bit more I find it really interesting Michael that there's never been more information about football never more information about what matters on the pitch never been more information about tactical styles and also things like leadership qualities there's been so much work done trying to understand trying to distill what leadership is at what high performance is right um there's so much more knowledge on personality types and and how personality types mix with other personality types and the concept of team performance a lot of that is psychological i think everyone agrees with that so given how much more of this there is i can't get my head around the fact that clubs, to my eyes, still have such a low success rate in hiring managers to achieve the overperformance that they are that they are after. I mean, outside of the obvious ones who just are amazing and do well and, and play win all the trophies. In that middle group, there's still a very, very low success rate, even with all the information at hand. What do you mean by middle group? I just mean I'm basically trying to take out Man City and Liverpool yeah, from yeah. this discussion and ideally Chelsea as well. I'm, I'm trying to move it away from yeah, sure. you know those elite clubs. They probably don't represent football as a whole and, and I'm trying to get away from no, that. No, I understand. I was, yeah, I was trying to work out whether you meant middle within the Premier League or middle within kind of professional football because I think it should be relatively easy for Premier League clubs now to attract good managers because they've got a lot of money. The Premier League is viewed as the league to go to. And even clubs like Wolves and Villa are appointing Lopetegui and Unai Emery, managers who've won the Europa League. Like It's incredible how much, really, historically, they're kind of punching above their weight now. But I do agree that, I mean, once you go down to the Championship and League One, League Two, not that there's not good managers there. But the same way, the difference between the best Premier League player and the worst Premier League player is surely massively more increased than the difference between the best League One player and a worse one, a uh, League One player. It's just, you know, once you get to the top, you do find the outliers. I mean, I think recruitment at, at Championship League One, League Two level is maybe what we're more talking about here. It must be so difficult at that level because the teams have kind of comparable budgets and there's just so much chaos at that level. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be fairly confident that at Premier League level, the best managers are pretty much in charge of the best teams or they will be eventually. Once you go down the pyramid, I think it's a completely different situation. Can I ask your thoughts on, on non-league 
because you watch a lot of non-league football, uh, the Isthmian League in particular. The club that you support has changed managers twice this season, I believe. It's been a very, very poor season and the latest manager has got some immediate results out of that group of players. Recruitment in non-league level is completely different to the top level. In fact, the newest manager of your club brought in I don't know, five to ten new players as soon as he arrived and he was able to do that in February time. It's it's a completely different ball game, right? So how much do you think that manager has an impact on a group of non-league players? You know, you guys, when things are going badly, you still chant for the manager to be sacked. So, like, how do you tell, you know, do you still believe that they are the most important thing there? Maybe more so than at the top or less so than at the top? Yeah, because I think at that level, as you imply, it goes back to what I said you know, was the case 15, 20 years ago, they judged on their signings. They don't get much time on the training ground. They're part-time players, so they can't really fix that much. I think they do a lot in terms of motivation and dressing room beforehand. But yeah, it's it's about getting your own players in. So it's, um, they're judged on that, really. You know, that's that's the reason, really. At that level, I think it's the same. Like, the good players uh, succeed and the bad players fail. And the management, I think, is a relatively small part of that in terms of the tactics and that mm. kind of thing. Yeah, it's just about getting the players in. It's uh, it's going back to the 1980s style of things. It reminds me that at the top of the show, you talked about how inherently people want causation. They want to know answers for why things have happened. And this is a theme throughout this whole discussion. Like I want to know the answers to a discussion that really doesn't have many answers. Um, for me, I'm just getting this sense that particularly out if, if we cut out Guardiola and Klopp and Ferguson, and if we cut out the, the most extreme failures as managers, right, those who have who've clearly failed spectacularly everywhere and undeniably through their own failings. I can't think of anyone in particular, but let's, <laughs> let, let's chop. <laughs> no, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is let's chop off the top 5%. Let's chop off the bottom 5% of managers. So let's look at the 90% in between. It strikes me that you can basically never definitively say if a manager is good or bad, but that's what everyone wants to know when their club is hiring a manager. Like most managers that have let's say five permanent jobs or more in their career will have one or two good ones and they'll have probably either got another job off the back of it or maybe things went a bit stale and they got sacked. They will definitely have one or two bad ones where they didn't achieve the overachievement and they got sacked and maybe let's say one in between. So again, you can never really know definitively if a manager is good or bad. You just have to guess the fit. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to small factors. And I think you're right in that unless the manager's at, you know, really the top level, the top four or five clubs in the Premier League, it's, it is tough to know. And I think it's quite rare that manager consistently does a good job everywhere he goes. I would argue that one example of someone who has, who isn't at a real top club, is Brennan Rodgers. I think did a good job at Swansea, at Liverpool, at Celtic, and now at Leicester. But yeah, you tend to get managers who've had a, a difficult difficult job here or there because there's you know one factor at a club one small factor could just be a couple of injuries or whatever can just completely derail a project and then that's always kind of a stain on their cv so i guess you have to you know look past those factors and i guess that's because the fit isn't the same everywhere or it's different everywhere so there's going to be places where um and this this happens across the board if you look at other sports that the the gaps between athletes in in athletic sports are so so narrow that there'll be times where you know and you also rely on the performance of other teams. So you could sometimes, at a point in the season, just stay still and other teams completely crash. We're seeing that in the Bundesliga at the moment with um, Dortmund went into the game against Leipzig, I believe, on the same points as they were at at the same stage last season. But Bayern had fallen off of a cliff. Um, obviously, Tuzic is doing a fantastic job because they'd 
before Chelsea, they'd won all 10 games in 2023. But it's that thing of you've got so much that's almost chaotic and, you know, you worry about all the variables that are going on in one club, but then you've then got to, you know, multiply that by, in the Premier League, a factor of 19 because you've got 19 other clubs where that's that's going on. And um, I think to, to Coxie's point before about, um, you know, Hassan until when he was at, at Southampton, like that being okay, those sort of three, four years that, that's probably fine to have two bad jobs, a couple of average ones and one or two really good ones. Like, I'm not really sure it's realistic and possible to want too much more because you're going to overperform at times, you probably will underperform at times. And it's it's about raising the bar of what your average is rather than constantly shooting, I think, for this like overperformance because as any data will tell you, that's, um, or datum will tell you, that's not uh, long-term sustainable. And I'd argue it went wrong this season because they got the wrong players in. I mean, the, guy, the, the goalkeeper, Pizzuno, is having a terrible season. I just don't think he's Premier League level yet. And if you're conceding a lot of shots, you, you, that's really going to cost you. I, I just can't really can't really look past that. So, yeah, of course it's about the players. I, I want us to do an episode at some point in the future uh, about if you could choose two players of your, let's say, core 10 or, or 11 to be your best players, your most impactful players... Or you could choose two players to not be your worst players, right? Striker and goalkeeper seem like the obvious ones. I was thinking about this. There's a team in League Two, Bradford City. Their underlying numbers aren't particularly good. They they they're they're quite inconsistent as a team overall. But their goalkeeper is amazing. I was having an amazing season, and their striker is the top scorer in the league. And so they're still within touching distance of promotion. Whereas there are other teams in that league whose processes are great. Their underlying numbers look good, build up, getting into good areas. But they haven't had a striker finishing chances at a hot level, and they've got a goalkeeper whose shot stopping numbers suggest he's letting in more than than he should do. I don't know what Mark will say to this, but I'm here to argue that that's fine um, because you can change processes sort of long term, but ultimately we still are desiring scoring goals, not conceding them and, and having wins. Um, I think we naturally are predisposed to like what happens in both boxes and obviously all the underlying stuff we measure between sort of both boxes, sort of in, in the middle part of the pitch and look at, can we make better chances? Can we concede um, well, better or not worse chances? Um, but there's also value and there's times where teams overperform and, and that's fine. I guess you just need that thing to then be, don't do what Burnley did when they got to Europe and then crash and completely go off the other end of the spectrum of you need to have periods where you consistently are raising your bar of what is good and what's average or your sort of your level, um, dipping over that as much as you can to sort of, you know, raise your level to seven or eight out of 10, hit a nine some days, but then don't fall off a cliff and plummet. Don't lose key players, be able to adapt to injury, be sort of versatile. I think it's something we're, we're really seeing with Spurs at the moment and last night in particular where they just don't seem to want to or be able to adapt um, and then that's when teams really start to sort of come down the list I think it's just being able to, to change and having to change when things are going well and winning as well I want to bring up a piece that John Muller wrote on The Athletic uh, it was a while ago now uh, and it was focused on Manchester United and their struggles to find a manager that achieved the performance levels that they expected post Alex Ferguson. Of course, now with Eric Ten Hag in charge, uh, they are back on the upwards trajectory and broadly doing very well, albeit we record with their most recent result being a 7-0 defeat. Uh, in this piece, John wrote, 
Just think for a second about how we collectively decide who is and isn't a good manager. It's rare to have all that much actual insight into what's happening on the training ground or during a dressing room speech, let alone the ability to compare it to what's going on at other training grounds and other dressing rooms. Managerial reputations are made on a dash of camera-ready charisma, a sprinkle of tactic-y sound bites, and a big steaming helping of just win, baby. Uh, when the team plays well, it's because the coach is a genius, and when they lose, he or she is an idiot and we knew it all along. Uh, what did you make of, of John's piece? What would your reaction or addition to that discussion be? Well, I think he's identified the problem in the first sentence and then been part of the, the problem at the, the very end of it with we need to stop just retrospectively applying the results of saying that a manager or, 